I first stumbled upon the word evangelist when I was a kid. It wasn't intentional. I was turning the dial on my television set. Yes, I know I'm dating myself when I say I had to get out of the chair to turn the dial, looking for my favorite weekend morning cartoon. And I stumbled on this TV evangelist pushing this or that. Have you ever noticed how they pronounce things emphasizing the end of the word? I wasn't religious. I did what I could to get out of Sunday school. Still, I have to admit, these preachers and how they banged on their pulpits were masters at engaging their audiences head, heart, and hands. And the ones that believed were absolutely, had such conviction that they couldn't help but build this great community of followers. The story I'm gonna to share today is a guest who many consider to be the first brand evangelist. And he did it for Apple and Steve Jobs. It starts with the desire to make meaning as opposed to make money. Making meaning means that you change the world. And I think you'll notice that if you happen to change the world, you will also probably make money. But if you start off with the sole desire to make money, you probably won't make money, you won't make meaning, you won't change the world, and you will probably fail. His job was to evangelize Macintosh to software developers and anyone who wanted to increase productivity and creativity. Steve Jobs liked him so much that he worked there twice, but each time the entrepreneurial bug bit him, he went off to do a startup. He was offered a third job and he turned that down as well as turning down the CEO of Yahoo and a couple others. And rumor has it, if he had kept those jobs, I'd be talking to a multi-billionaire. Isn't this promising to be an exciting show? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. From there, he became an acclaimed author, speaker, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, advisor, podcaster, and a wonderful father. Millions of people follow him across his social media platforms. His name's Guy Kawasaki, and I'm a fan of his books, his talking, his thinking, and his commentary, but most importantly, of his humanity. Guy Kawasaki, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, thank you very much. I need to correct a few things. I was the second software evangelist or brand evangelist. The first one was Mike Boich, and he hired me, my classmate from Stanford. I'm, I'm living proof of nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, I, I don't know how much Steve Jobs really liked me, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's a besides the point. So uh, I wasn't exactly, you know, his BFF. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I talk about humanity and, and what I read is you really deeply care about people. And I'm curious that, and I also read about your family, third generation Japanese moving to Hawaii. So I'd love to start the story back there and we'll get to Canva and some of the things you're doing today. But what was it like growing up uh, in, in Hawaii? Well, if you're looking for the Horatio Algiers story, how I overcame such problems and such you know, poverty and all that, uh, I hate to disappoint you. I came from a lower middle class family. I never thought I was poor. I mean... <laughs> You know, it's not like I didn't have enough to eat and it's not like uh, I didn't have enough clothes. So lower middle class, my family provided very well for me. I had a very sort of happy childhood. How bad could it be growing up in Hawaii? You know, in Hawaii anyway, as opposed to perhaps the mainland, uh, Japanese Americans were, were the power elite and my father was a state senator. So if you're looking for that, you know, raise yourself up by your bootstraps kind of story. I ain't it. I'm not at all. I'm, I, what I want to hear about is your tiny apartment on the beach. Yeah, right. On on the other hand, it's not like I was born with a life on a silver platter. My sixth grade teacher told my parents to get me out of the Hawaii public school system, put me in the private school system because I had too much potential. 
And you know, back then, the Hawaii public school system was severely challenged. So my parents made the ultimate sacrifices and got me into a private school. That private school led to Stanford, and Stanford led to Mike Boych, and the rest is history. So when your parents are making the sacrifice, but obviously, from what I understand, they were very instrumental in terms of shaping your values. I read an article where you talked about some of the great lessons you've learned from your parents. And I'd love you to share one or two of them with us. This was between my first and second jobs at Apple. I was living in San Francisco on Union Street near the Presidio. And if you're familiar with San Francisco, that is a very nice part of San Francisco. So one day I'm outside of my house and I'm trimming the bougainvillea. And this older white woman comes up to me and says, do you do lawns also? <laughs> and I said to her, so because I'm Japanese American, you think I'm the yard man, right? She goes, no, 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 you're just doing such a great job that I thought I'd ask you if you do lawns. And so there's a lesson there already. There's a story there about you know racial stereotyping, right? Japanese American must be a yard man. So there's a lesson there, but that, that's not why I tell you the story. So a few weeks later, my father visits me and I tell him this story and I fully expect him to just go off on this woman. You know, how dare she think you're the gardener, you went to Stanford, you work for Apple, you're an author, blah, blah, blah. But instead he says to me, you know, son, Japanese American, where you live, the odds are she was right. You were the yard man. So get over it. <laughs> That was a turning point in my life because I learned to give people the benefit of the doubt, take the high road, don't look for problems, don't let people, you know, make you crazy. Whether she was being racist or not, you know, so what? Should that affect your psyche and make you crazy? So ever since then, it's been very hard to insult me. And your four children have very different circumstances than you growing up, as you said, lower middle class in Hawaii. <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, world-renowned father, claimed author, and your wife calls you the Disney dad for how you spoil him. What kind of lessons do you think they'll have 15 or 20 years from now? Not just that you're a great guy, you love to surf together and all the things I've read about you, but what are you, what are you hoping that they'll get out of it? Because it's circumstances change what, you can, what values you can bring to people. Well, I hope that they will see that their father was willing to work hard, was a perfectionist, liked to be clean, <laughs> like the clean house. Although my wife might debate some of that, but, but I hope they see that I worked hard. I didn't expect something for nothing, that I was generous and kind uh, to people who were not as fortunate as we are. And that there's the concept that my father taught me, which is noblesse oblige, which is, you know, we have an obligation. When you're fortunate, you have an obligation to the rest of the world. You were reflecting once, it was an article about you as a dad, and, the, and you said, you know, I read a lot to my first kid, not so much to the second, by the time the fourth one came along, I really didn't reach them, and I regret that. And I think a lot of people that are so passionate in life and have so consumed with what they do, Balance is tough because we, we love what we're doing. You know, and people don't say, you're not a workaholic. I'm, I'm so excited. What advice can you give to young Guy Kawasaki's in terms of making sure you, you find the time to do what matters, even if what you're investing is time that's going to matter to others? Well, I, I think one thing is the concept that you can strive and achieve for a work-life balance is a myth. I think there are periods in your life where there will be no balance, that it's going to be mostly work and a little bit of life. And then there are other periods in life where it's going to be mostly life and little work. 
And so to think that you can thread the needle consistently throughout your life, I think is a myth. The other question I have for you on life is you also were talking about your degrees earlier. You, you got the psychology degree at Stanford, the MBA at UCLA School of Management. But you also spent a week going after a law degree and you quit after a week. And I find a lot of students feeling the pressure of mounting debt are also feeling the stress of I might not have taken the major that I thought I should take. Any thoughts on how students nowadays can do better at finding their path in life versus just immediately tumbling into a expensive degree that might not get them to fire on their cylinders? That presupposes that at some way or with some magic or some insight that you can figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, or 21. I think that is also a myth. I don't know. Take an extreme example. You spent a quarter million bucks getting a, a major in Asian art history. And now you figured out that, hmm, that might not be too monetizable. Well, it may not be too monetizable when you're 21 years old. But arguably, if you look at successful people, it's not like they all went to the same school and they all got the same education in the same major, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's too early to make the call. You know, very few people, I think, unless you decide to be a lawyer, doctor, or dentist, at 18 years old have figured out their life track. Yeah, give yourself a break. Um, the purpose of an education is not simply to prepare you for a job. It's to prepare you for life, of which your job is one aspect, but it's not the only aspect. Apple wanted to democratize computers. They wanted to bring computing power to everyone. That's the meaning they made. With Google, they wanted to democratize information, making information available to everyone. With eBay, they wanted to democratize commerce so that anyone with a website could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with any other large retailer. Examples of companies making meaning. So what I noticed in my career is that if you truly want to make meaning, it's the first step towards innovation. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today, my guest is Guy Kawasaki, author of 15 books, Silicon Venture Capitalist, brand ambassador for Mercedes, chief evangelist of Canva.com. He also has a remarkable podcast called Remarkable People. Guy, before we get to Apple, your first job was in a jewelry business. What did you do and what did you learn there? Well, the very first job was literally counting diamonds. It was a part-time job while I was getting my MBA. After my MBA, I went to that company instead of a bank or consulting firm. And eventually I became vice president of sales and marketing. So it was a small jewelry manufacturer in downtown Los Angeles that sold to jewelry retailers. And in that position, I truly learned how to sell, which is an awesome life skill. You're either selling or you're making. Those are the only two fundamental <laughs> functions in the world. So if you can't make, you better sell. And if you can't sell, you better be making. And graduates often want to catch the perfect wave out of school, you know, the company and job that impresses. Mm -hmm. You believe that it's less about the company or title early in your life and more about how you approach that job. Tell us more about what you were thinking when you, when you were sharing that in a podcast. I, I think that, and, and I'm not saying it's unnatural, but the tendency to want to thread the needle and get that first perfect job is vastly overrated. And that's more true than ever because someone who's entering the workforce today is probably going to have five, 10 jobs over his or her career. 
in the old days, maybe you went to IBM or Procter & Gamble right out of college and you stayed with them for 30 years and then retired, but that ain't happening anymore. You may not even remember what your first job was. The real value of your first few jobs is that you're learning. You're learning about the function of sales. You're learning how organizations work. You learn what not to do uh, from your managers. At that time of life, you are still collecting data. You're not supposed to be threading needles yet. And you talked about it, the jewelry business. You you moved up into a leadership role and you felt you were so prepared because you'd read people like Peter Drucker, who I'm a huge fan of as well. But you found it was a lot harder than you thought because of the soft side of leadership. What do you mean by that? Well, I thought that the hard part of leadership is, you know, cranking numbers and, you know, optimizing results, operations research and finance and all that kind of stuff. And I have come to believe that that's wrong, that that kind of stuff, you can always hire experts or professionals to do that, to do your corporate finance, incorporation, all that kind of stuff. But the hard stuff is leading people. And speaking of interesting jobs, from the jewelry business, you get your MBA, and then you land a job at Apple as their brand evangelist. You mentioned earlier that it came out through nepotism. Tell me a little bit about what really went on. Well, what really went on is that my college classmate, Mike Boych, hired me into the Macintosh division. And I was a person who did not have a technical background in education or work experience. So, you know, it, <laughs> this is not being modest. It was purely because of nepotism. So you worked there from 83 to 87 and 95 to 1997. Tell us what it was like the early days at Apple and then when you came back, because everybody just looks at Apple as this phenom, but I have to believe there must have been very different cultures and a whole different approach to life. From 83 to 87, that was just the wonder years, right? As in, well, I wonder when the software will be ready, but also it was just fantastic. I mean, working for Steve Jobs, which was a scary experience, but so exciting. And we were on a mission to dent the universe, to prevent utopian 1984 George Orwellian, you know, end of society. So we were truly on a mission. 95 to 97, that's when Apple was supposed to die. And I came back to help preserve the Apple uh, community of developers and cult believers. And so even that, I have to say, was very fun. Um, I think with Apple, a good algorithm is that things are never as good or as bad as they seem. You talk about you passing the Steve Jobs test of honesty by being someone that wasn't afraid to tell him that you didn't like the product. Well, this is a story where uh, in my second stint at Apple, when Steve had sold next to Apple and he was on the way to coming back in. So he was an advisor, but he wasn't really you know, the new CEO yet or the, the re replacement CEO. And so we were in a meeting with all the marketing people, myself, Steve, and the ad agency that created the uh, Think Different campaign. He, the ad agency person, showed us the great Think Different commercials. And at the end of this meeting, he said, well, Steve, I have two copies of these commercials. I'll give you a copy and I'll give Guy a copy. And Steve said, don't give Guy a copy. So I said, why, Steve? You don't trust me? And he said, yes, Guy, I don't trust you. And I responded by saying, well, Steve, it's okay because I don't trust you either. <laughs> and what happened then? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, I don't think he expected that answer, but, um, you know, probably cost me 250 million bucks, but so what? I mean... <laughs> It's a great story. Was that the end of the time at Apple for the second time? Yes. 
Although later on, he offered me another job and I declined. <laughs> Very few people I imagine have turned down Steve Jobs, but uh, why did you turn him down the third time? Um, well, obviously, I didn't think Apple would become a trillion-dollar company. <laughs> if I thought that, I would have said yes, right? <laughs> so, you know, what do I know? And I just, you know, I didn't want to live in the Steve Jobs reality distortion field anymore. But you cite him as being one of the visionaries, uh, and you've only there's only a handful in your list that say really have put a dent in the universe. Yes, I mean, and I think you just added Elon Musk, Musk to that list, if I'm correct. What makes a visionary? It's a short, short list. Yeah. So I mean, these are people who have really created technologies or products that have changed the world and not by copying others. And so uh, that's a short list. <laughs> I have difficulty coming up with a third person, actually. Two of my favorite quotes from you is, great companies start because the founders want to change the world, not make a fast buck. And a similar one, if you make money, you might not make meaning. That seems to be really the essence of your, the last 15 years of your life is really impressing upon people that there's a higher purpose than just profit. Well, I hope so. Uh, and it is a lesson that you learn towards the end of your life. Um, I, I think that profit is an outcome of making people's lives better with Macintosh or Canva. So both products have made people's lives better and they've been successful financially. But I don't think that you know, for example, Melanie and Cliff and Cameron, the three co-founders of Canva, I don't think they sat around plotting how to become billionaires. They, they sat around thinking, how do we make people into great designers and artists? And if you pull that off, guess what? You are rewarded. And they did. But it's easy to say, but it, you, know, you have the anomaly, like you said, Canva. But given that the, the title, the trophies we put are things like unicorns and valuations and raises seem to be triumph values and erase society. How do you install that kind of heart into a world where so much change really is becoming, you know, am I going to be the next unicorn? I would say that if you encounter companies or people who are obsessed with becoming the next unicorn, the probability of them becoming the next unicorn <laughs> is, is reduced, actually. So call me naive or romantic, but I think you... You know, step one is dent the universe. Step two is become a unicorn, not vice versa. The next thing I want to talk to you about is this positive contribution you've made to the conversation regarding diversity and inclusion. And you cite the time at Apple where there was a diverse culture, not because it was about numbers or quotas, but because it was making a better company. Take us back to the, your initial experience with it. I would say that Steve Jobs was way ahead of his time in that area too. If you looked at his direct reports in the Macintosh division, I think there were about 50% women. We all universally feared Steve, whether we were black, white, yellow, brown, male, female, straight, gay, trans. <laughs> I don't know if he was blind to it, but all he cared about was competence. One of the realizations you come to in business is that a gating item for the success of a company is high quality employees. Let's take not hiring women, right? So if your big problem is finding great employees, why would you take half of the people off the table? You need as big a pool to pull from as possible. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. We come back, I ask Guy Kawasaki to share some of his top lessons in business. Every student, entrepreneur, or those who aspire to be, in fact, everyone with ambition should take notes. Only two out of five would-be entrepreneurs take the leap. 
Many don't because of the cost and bureaucracy. Owner by RBC Ventures wants to make your entrepreneurial dreams a reality. They'll cut the cost and time required to get going and much of the paperwork afterwards. 65,000 entrepreneurs have used Owner and you can too. Reach out to ownr.co. Your dreams matter to Owner and RBC. At the start of great innovation, you may think you have in mind exactly who your user is, exactly who your customer is, what they should do with your product. And you may be surprised that people are going to use your product in ways you did not anticipate. And it's going to be people who you did not anticipate would be using it at all. And when this occurs, hallelujah, positioning and branding ultimately comes down to what the consumer decides, not to what you decide. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is Guy Kawasaki, and you'll soon hear why I'm a fan. It extends beyond his impressive credentials. I'm impressed with how he puts heart and humanity ahead of profit. You talk about one of the pieces of advice you give to people recruiting to open their mind and to eliminate their biases. Have the first interview over the phone. So you're not framing a, a perception by how someone looks, but more listening generously to what they have to say. Is that something you encourage all the companies you're involved with to do? I think it's worth a worthy experiment. You can obviously tell a person's gender from a phone conversation, but it takes a lot of other variables off the table, such as, you know, attractive or not. Do they smell good or not? Are they dressed cool or not? I mean, there's like a lot of things that it's only a voice, right? Well, most interviews were conducted virtually anyway for the last two years. So that I think took some stuff off the table. I just go back to this theory that the gating item is great people. You should not eliminate anybody from that pool for stupid reasons like gender, looks, race, color, you know, that kind of stuff. Just just hire the best people. Oh, my God. It's hard enough. It's hard enough. It's so true. I share a common thought with you. The world would be more peaceful and be much less spending on military and much more towards healthcare and education if it was women leading countries. Do you think America is ready for a women president? <laughs> I think it's long overdue. Um, men just, I don't know, they just like to kill things. And it, everything is a zero-sum game for a man. Now, obviously, not every man believes that, but it seems like almost every man in power believes that. Men have been running the world for so long, look where we are. Let's give women a chance. What have we got to lose? I couldn't agree more on that. I want to shift now to your 10th book, Enchantment, The Art of Changing Hearts, Minds, and Actions. And you offer so many wonderful thoughts. What, what do you consider the difference between persuasion and enchantment? Well, I would say that enchantment is a higher and purer form of persuasion because there are techniques of persuasion that are immoral or at least amoral and unethical. But enchantment implies, I think, a more positive perspective where you really have enchanted. I mean, I don't know. Would you rather be enchanted or persuaded? I would pick enchanted. I think it's sounds better. It's more romantic. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I understand what you're saying. I think it's it's less about forcing someone into a quarter and instead enchanting someone to the middle and and saying yes. This is, so I, I agree with you. I would say that persuaded and enchanted are both better than sold to. <laughs> In any case. You've, you've been involved since the very beginning of social media. You're a, a huge advocate of social media and its positive side. 
One of the quotes you said is that the nobodies are the new somebodies. What did you mean by that? Yeah, it used to be buyer beware. You'd have to find a trusted source to review the book, review the computer, you know, whatever, uh, because it was a pyramid and somebody at the top of the pyramid would tell the people below him or her, you know, what to buy, what to do. I think that pyramid has been inverted. And I'll use books as an example. It used to be that you depended on the New York Times book review, Washington Post book review, Kirkus Publishers Weekly, whatever. You know, they were professional book reviewers and they were arbiters of taste. I would make the case today that very few people wait for the New York Times book review to decide if they're going to read a book or not. Now, you know, these nobodies are on Amazon Trixie or Tiffany or Biff has given a book a five-star rating and said it's a wonderful book and blah, blah, blah. And you click on it and in one click you've bought the book. That's very different than waiting for the New York Times Sunday edition book review to decide to read a book. And in that world, all marketing is different. What's your advice for people with their personal brand so that they're going out in the world and getting the nobody's out there to, to endorse them versus, you know, hoping that their resume has some kind of letter of reference from one person. The big picture is I think people should stop worrying about their personal brand because I think the moment you decide that you're going to quote, build your personal brand is where you start going off the rails by trying to game the system. The way you build a personal brand is to do something great, write a great book, make a great product, invent a great service, change the world, dent the universe, whatever it is. So if you do something great, guess what? You'll have a personal brand. As opposed to sitting around thinking, okay, I'm going to enhance my personal brand. I'm going to be a thought leader. So I'm going to write a book. You know, your, your name is Joe Blow, and you're going to write a book called The Blow Way, and you're going to self-publish it by Blow Press because you want people to read your book and think you're a thought leader, so they hire you for speaking and other kinds of gigs. Ask yourself, do you think that Steve Jobs or Elon Musk ever sat down and said, huh, I got to enhance my personal brand. Why don't I create a computer with a graphical user interface? Or I need to enhance my personal brand. Why don't I create an electric car or our bore tunnels or I'll fly to Mars or I'll make solar panels or I'll make a satellite system for remote internet access. All of that will enhance my personal brand. I don't think so. At least I hope not. A couple of the lessons that you offer in, in many of your books, one of them is how to create a mission. You talk about missions versus mantra. Explain. I'm anti-mission. <laughs> uh, I think mission statements are too long. They try to serve too many parties. Basically, they're BS. So what I think you should do is create a mantra. And a mantra is only two or three words. And in the two or three words, you have to define why you should exist. So I would say the mantra for Canva is to democratize design. I want five sentences, not war and peace. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that as you're, as you're trying to encourage people to communicate more effectively. That has to do with email. So I think the most important part of an email is the subject line. And if your subject line doesn't work, all bets are off. Now, once you get past the subject line, then I think you have about five sentences. And I cannot tell you how many emails I get where I'm in the third or fourth paragraph and I'm scanning because I see it, that it's long. I'm scanning and I still cannot figure what the hell you want. 
So basically, I think you have five sentences. And if it was up to me, though it may seem impolite, in the first sentence, I want to know what you want. Because if I can't or won't give it to you, I don't need to read the rest, right? Of the 15 books that you've written, which is impressive, and it's not just in the sense of numbers, if somebody hasn't read you as a curator, what would be the one you'd want to start with in terms of investing time, understanding more about it? Guy Kawasaki. Well, investing time to understand more about Guy Kawasaki definitely would be wise guy because that's sort of written at the tail end of my career, illustrated with stories like I told you today that explain how I got to where I am. And I don't mean just in terms of career-wise, but just mentally. Having said that, it's not clear to me that, you know, that's that important because it's not like I'm Nelson Mandela or something. So I think that um, for entrepreneurs, then you should read The Art of the Start 2.0. It is the de facto standard for how to start a company. And then if you want to be an influencer, persuader, sales, marketing type, you should read Enchantment. Although The Art of the Start contains the most valuable lessons of enchantment. So if you had to boil it down to two, if you want to understand Guy, read Wise Guy. If you want to understand everything else, read The Art of the Start 2.0. Guy, before we get to your podcast, Remarkable People, and your work as an evangelist for Canva, while also representing Mercedes as brand ambassador and hosting a podcast, Remarkable People, I have to ask you, why did you take up hockey at age 48? I took up hockey at age, I don't know if it was 48, 44, 48, something like that, uh, because my kids expressed an interest in it. And my wife said that she doesn't want me to be one of these sideline, Blackberry holding, you know, venture capital, high-tech executives who just look up from their Blackberries every once in a while. She wanted me involved with their lives. So if they're taking up hockey, you should take up hockey too. And I, she may have regretted that because I really took it up. You know, I was, I was playing hockey two, three, four times a week from maybe 44 years old till 60. And then I fell in love with surfing and I took up surfing because my daughter took up surfing and surfing has supplanted hockey. So now I surf every day. I mean, literally every day. Hello, I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. The goal for these is to help you become remarkable as quickly and easily and rapidly as possible. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today, my guest is Guy Kawasaki, author of 15 books, Silicon Venture Capitalist, brand ambassador for Mercedes, chief evangelist of Canva.com. He also has a remarkable podcast called Remarkable People. So let's talk about brand evangelists. Is this something that every brand or business owner should think about having? Well, some of it is in the eye of the beholder, right? So I will tell you that evangelism comes from a Greek term, meaning bringing the good news. Your product or service has to be good news. Now, it might not be good news for everybody, but it should be good news for somebody. Now, if it's just purely mediocre, hard to imagine that you can evangelize it because it has to captivate people. It has to you know, enchant people. You could build a case that something I find completely boring, not interesting, would be very important to some people. So could there be an evangelist for something that I don't care about? Absolutely. So I know so many companies knock on your door. Why did you choose Canva 
as sort of an area that you're going to focus this reputation you have for working with companies that you think can put a debt? Well, Canva actually found me, to tell you the truth. And they found me. And then I asked someone who was working on my, or still is, working with me on social media, uh, if she liked the product and if I should help them. And she said yes, and the rest is history. So it is a myth to think that I looked at you know hundreds of companies and picked Canva out of it. Canva reached out to me and I checked with Peg Fitzpatrick and she said, yes, you ought to help that company and the rest is history. I was not actively looking for anything back then. I was living the dream. <laughs> and you're also a brand ambassador for Mercedes. I have to imagine that comes with some pretty sweet rides. I know I read an article or a quote one time. You said, later in life, I now realize I can be happy in the back of a van versus always chasing the next luxury car, but you're, you're with Mercedes. So what do they expect you to do as a brand ambassador? Well, uh, that position has sadly ended. Uh, for a while, it was great. I could have any Mercedes that I wanted. You know, the thinking was that if you have visible people who are popular, that they would attract people to the brand. So, you know, Roger Federer, world great tennis player, uses a Mercedes. So if you aspire to be like Roger Federer, you buy a Mercedes if he's your hero. Guy Kawasaki, tech person, um, if you aspire or admire him, you would you know consider the car he drives. So it's that kind of reasoning. And let's talk a bit about your Remarkable People podcast. I mean, you've written 15 books. You speak all over the world, TED Talks, major conferences. Why a podcast? And what advice can you give to people uh, in terms of what it takes to put out content that really matters. As you said, my podcast is called Remarkable People. And basically, I am on a mission to make my listeners remarkable. And this is not Guy preaching about what he thinks. This is Guy reaching out to remarkable people to try to help people understand, you know, what makes Jane Goodall remarkable, Steve Wozniak, Katie Milkman, Angela Duckworth, Ronnie Lott, Christy Yamaguchi. My podcast is about 95% the other person talking and 5% me talking. So I, my role is a moderator slash facilitator slash, you know, catalyst. I'm not the talent in these. And so what I'm trying to do is just help people the lessons of remarkableness from remarkable people. We'll end on this question with the lessons from remarkable people. If there's one lesson you could leave the audience, knowing that you have the perspective of time, you've stepped into so many different careers, what would be the, the lesson in life you would say, if I could just bottle that and give it to people, we would be a better planet for it? Well, <laughs> one very simple algorithm would be, don't expect people to do something that you would not do whether that's an employee, a vendor, a partner, a customer, if you wouldn't do it, and I'm assuming you're not a psychopath, if you wouldn't do it, don't expect other people to do it either. You know, Guy, I always end my podcast with the three things I've learned today. And obviously there's so many more, but I'll just hit the highlight. The first one, your dad showing up and you're just so insulted that somebody thought you were the gardener because you're Japanese and him saying, get over yourself. And that changed your whole focus on humanity saying, I will turn negative into positive and I'll turn what I might think is an insult into an opportunity to, uh, to learn or to change myself or others. Second one is really the cornerstone of what I think everybody listening should, whether you're starting up a business or in a career, healthcare workers or anything is, which is a sense of chasing meaning. 
going after something that's meaning that you're doing, you're bringing something, you know, you said a dent to the universe or making somebody smile that day who might be in a, in a, a home for retired people, whatever you do for a living, that there's something bigger than just your paycheck, which I love. And then I, you know, I was torn between mantra, not mission, which is a sense of distill what you have to offer in three words. But I also love, don't expect people to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. For all of that and more, I am so honored to have you on Chatter That Matters. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to have been on it. So I hope that people listen to my podcast, first and foremost. And I hope that I somehow, we talked about this concept of mantra. And my mantra for myself is two words, which is empower people. And that's what I want to do. Joining me now is someone from RBC Ventures. Her name's Shadi McIsaac. You've probably read about her because she's been all over the press. In fact, she was uh, recently uh, acknowledged as Bay Street's uh, Woman of the Year. And she's building a business called Owner, O-W-N-R. And why I wanted to bring on the show, it's not just about her business and her passion, but the fact what she's doing is actually helping small business owners turn their dreams into reality. Shadi, welcome to... Uh, Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. Tell us a little bit about what you do and why you feel you're helping to change the, the world. There's a series of things that all entrepreneurs have to go through early in their journey as they get started. One of those things is sort of formalizing their business or making it official. They're chasing a dream and that dream can actually vary, you know, whether it's to pursue a passion, be their own boss, want to change their financial circumstance so that they can you know, put roof over their head and, and food on the table. Normally, somebody would just go to a lawyer, an accountant. Why would they go to you versus them? Yeah, I would say if, if you sort of look at the majority of the small businesses that are starting here in Canada, we're able to uh, make the process simple, take out the legal jargon, make it you know qu quite fast, frankly, and then notably more affordable. So through the power of technology, we're able to deliver all those benefits and savings back back to the entrepreneurs, especially at a time where this idea of capital or or rather lack thereof is a huge consideration. Now this business is was created in that incubator called RBC Ventures. Is there any sense though that these people out there are going, this is just RBC trying to sell me products and services? Or how do you work so that they know not only do you bring these services, but they can get the best out of RBC? Yeah, I mean, listen, owner is for, for everyone. There's no uh, requirement to, to have any relationship with RBC before or after using owner. Um, and I think that's that's a real testament for the to the fact that um, we are here to su support the small business community here in Canada. That's amazing. So how do you feel as an individual? You feel like you are changing the world and you start like thinking about those small businesses and their livelihood and realize that that's a job well done versus just a business well built? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say, I, I don't know if I feel that I'm changing the world, but I feel like we as a team are, are changing individual circumstance. And if it makes sense, that's even more powerful. Anytime someone interacts with us, it's just an ind individual on the other end of the line who's looking to change their personal circumstance independent of what their reason is. It's what an honor to be a, to be a part of that as they're doing that. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.